0: Good morning everyone uh, welcome to our Friday morning series uh, that uh, you've all joined for now it seems like uh, seems like a year but it, it's only been about three months uh, a remarkable time in in our history uh, we're making great progress I think uh, Dr. Shriver will show you the epidemiology in Connecticut but he'll also warn you about what's going on in other states um, so we we have to be still continue to be very careful and try to learn about this disease, the epidemiology, how it, it, uh, how it's evolving over time, and how do we keep our patients safe, and how do we keep ourselves safe. So so hang in there, we're almost, we're getting through this, it's, that's very important. Uh, we have two speakers today, John, uh, who, you know, our own Tony Fauci, uh, who will give you new information. I get a lot of comments about how helpful John is to, to all of you, um, especially, you know, the pediatricians out in the community, so I, you know, I, I wanna be, Uh, I also want to extend my gratitude to John. He's been really a godsend to us during this period, and I know he works very hard getting the most up-to-date information, so thank you, John. But we also have uh, the the other side. I'm not saying John is old. He's not. He's a young guy um, up in Massachusetts, but now we have uh, the younger version of of him, uh, Dr. El Shabib. He's one of our two new Pediatric infectious disease providers uh, who have been really uh, both Ed Kim and and Hassan have been just uh, amazing I mean they have been working 24-7 taking the the service calls the on-calls talking to people online and uh, They've stepped in this just remarkably Uh, and this year this week They were uh, recognized with something that we call the star of the week which it's a uh, it's an award that we give to employees uh, in at any level that have gone beyond their call of duty to do things, and, and both won the award this week because of the amount of work that they have done and how they've done it uh, with grace, which just you know, embrace, uh, you know, imagine you come in us out of fellowship and the first thing you got to deal with is an infectious disease provider, it's a pandemic. Uh, it was a test, we said we will test them and they have passed the test. So uh, Hassan will follow up John with some interesting information about the normal things that we see, regular infectious diseases, regular fevers, to make sure we don't get confused that not everything is COVID, not everything is Missy. Um, in fact, most of the things are not, and, and I think Hassan will bring us back to normal infectious disease, which I'm looking forward to. Before I, I hand it off to John, we have uh, some survey questions that I like, uh, if possible, if you could help us, uh, and uh, we're gonna read them in just a second and see if I can they come up on my screen. I don't see them yet. And uh, there are five questions. Uh, you, you should see them on the screen. The first one is, uh, would you like to see this series continue throughout the summer? It's just a simple yes or no. Would you like to see the series continue throughout the summer? Yes or no? The next question is um, Would this series be helpful to you in the fall? Uh, Yes or no? Would this series be helpful to you in the fall? Yes or no? The next question is How often would you like this series to continue? Either weekly, bi weekly, monthly? Again, weekly, biweekly, monthly, all you have to do is click on that little dot. You can only answer one, one of the choices. Uh, question number four is, do you feel the topics covered have been relevant and that we have covered all areas you would like to hear about, yes or no? And I think this is a uh, an open question. There are areas, topics that we haven't addressed, and you can write in, You know what you want to hear about uh and again yes or no and then topics that we have not addressed relevant to infectious disease or you know this area of the pandemic or or associated to this and then the last question is would you like this series made available via podcast like our grand rounds yes or no podcast so you can listen to dr shriver on your way home from uh, from your last zoom visit uh uh, probably, you know, I think we're going to market him in some way. We have to figure out if we maybe come up with an emoji for him specifically. So I'm going to ask Liz, maybe we can find, we can do a Shriver emoji. We can do stickers, you know, that would be something we can do. Uh, so again, if you can go back and, there are five questions. Uh, if this is really helpful to us, just click and submit. And by now, uh, Philip, I'm going to ask if people have answered. Do you have a way of knowing? Uh, about 70%, so I'll give you. One more minute, and then we'll pass it on to, to Dr. Shriver. Um, and we're working on his internet and see if, you know, it's Massachusetts. I mean, Massachusetts is slower than Connecticut. What can we do? Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's, 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 it's what happens for people from Massachusetts we live in Connecticut. And hopefully we can also fix his internet, and uh, we're working on that. And maybe we can bring him here real time, one of these days. Thanks, <laughs> Okay, I think that's that's it for now. And so, John, if you want to go ahead and, uh, and, and take it over.
1: Uh, get to, let me share my screen. And uh, can you hear me and can you see me?
0: We can hear you. Uh, We don't see that now. We can see your screen. So can you see the slides, Juan? Yes. Yes, we can. can. Go ahead.
1: Uh, Good morning, everyone. All right. Thank you, Juan. Uh, And good morning, everyone. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here um, to this wide and talented audience that uh, I have the privilege of talking to weekly during this once in a hopefully once in a lifetime pandemic. I have some editorial comments. I'm sorry for those. (laughs) A couple. (laughs) who have given me a little pushback, but, uh, you know, united we stand. We're all in this together. Uh, We're a very diverse country. It's our strength, and uh, I I think um, it's a grand experiment, and it's going to work, and uh, I have tremendous optimism as we get out of the other side of this as a country. Epidemiology and pandemics are not political, they are mathematical. SARS-CoV has a reproduction number of three. If We do nothing, we know exactly how many people get infected uh, by one contact. So it's all math, and uh, you'll see some of the math that's unfolding in some of the states that have chosen to ignore the mathematics. The virus is the enemy, uh, not each other. Um, The pandemic, unfortunately, is not over. It's not nearly over. I wish I could tell you it was over, it's not, and we're going to have some tough months ahead, and we need to be continued vigilant about this. And masks and physical distancing, I've shown you the data, uh, they work, both in the healthcare and community settings. Now, the United States, uh, in seven months, uh, by August, the prediction is there'll be 150,000 deaths from COVID, um, and that's twice the number of casualties in the eight-year Vietnam War. Uh, it's a lot of people, and I, I don't want us, you know, we sort of breeze through this, and the news doesn't even talk about it sometimes, and these are a lot of people. Every one of them had family. Every one of them uh, had uh, loved ones, and uh, it's a lot of casualties, and this is a real pandemic where all of us are always going to remember this the rest of our lives, and um, I don't want to minimize the loss to many families out there, uh, 150,000 deaths by August is a success story. Um, I, I think this would be a tremendous role model uh, for the rest of the country. Uh, you can see um, that the number of, dramatically, it is approaching zero in the state of Connecticut. A remarkable achievement, a lot of hard work from the governor on down, uh, and to the people who, who listened and stayed in their houses, wore the masks, all of the health care providers who took care of the critically ill. An amazing achievement, and one in which actually exceeds uh, some countries in in terms of their success. If you look at COVID deaths uh, on the bottom graph, you can see that probably by mid-summer, we'll be uh, having zero deaths in the state, probably sooner. Uh, Again, tremendous achievement, but think how we did it. We had a shutdown. We had to have a variety of mandatory shutdowns. Um, But this has prepared us to move to a place where we can focus on every contact of every new case and keep it contained. Uh, This is a great place to be, and and one uh, I can't uh, tell you how we should be a role model. Now, unfortunately, in this country right now, for reasons that I find unfathomable, we've not done this as a unified country. Every state has done it depending on the politics or, or the governor or whatever. Arizona, unfortunately, never really had a robust shutdown, reopened everything rather quickly, and this is where they are in early June. Um, it's a nightmare. Uh, every ICU bed is gonna be filled in the next seven days, is the prediction, uh, and they're like New York City. Uh, it's, it's nuts. So um, the state of Connecticut has now said you don't need to quarantine if you're traveling, but in my opinion, if you go to hot spots like this, and return to Connecticut, you need to be quarantined for 14 days, in my opinion. So we have some states, unfortunately, that are a repeating history of New York, uh, and they're going to need to respond to it um, because their medical systems will become overwhelmed shortly. And this is Arizona. and There are a couple of other states similar to that. Looks like we lost my video. I'm sorry. On, I apologize. Uh, uh, DSL in this part of Massachusetts is all we have. Doesn't work so well. Now, um, one thing I've noticed, uh, I made the mistake of watching the news last night, and it was called world news, but there was no world in it. It was all an introspection of the United States, and uh, not a single mention of the rest of the world. Well, a pandemic, by definition, is the rest of the world. And I want to focus a little bit on data coming from the EU, because they're ahead of us, and uh, it allows us some insights of where we are going. Now the worst country in the EU was Belgium. They're sort of like us. I mean, they had an enormous spike early on in the epidemic. It was uncontrolled. It was not exactly clear why Belgium was the worst-hit country in the EU. Nobody knows. Um, But they had a lot of deaths and a lot of cases for a small country. And they had a complete lockdown. And you can see by May they had this under control. It's a little bit out of date. Um, And but there are countries in the EU that very much seem like the United States and this rapidity of sweeping through of certain parts of the country. Now, unfortunately, um, the EU has not achieved herd immunity. And I want to focus on Sweden. If you look down the column here, you'll you'll notice that uh, Sweden uh, uh, had this policy of a little bit of a laissez-faire. They kept the bars open and this and that. and. Uh, Their thought was that maybe they could manage this and they would get herd immunity and take care of it. And unfortunately, what happened is they had a very high death rate. They lost a lot of their elderly and they did not achieve herd immunity. It's around 3 to 5% of the population got infected. In Belgium, you see almost 10% of the population looks like they were infected, the largest number in the EU bicarbably well, they, they had a few cases, clamped down quickly uh, and had integrated response to this uh, and uh, ditto uh, with uh, Germany and Austria. So I, I think uh, there's something to be learned here. Um, you know, The uncontrolled uh, model will burn through and kill a lot of people, but unfortunately, probably not give you herd immunity. Uh, that's just gonna require millions and millions of people to be infected, not something we wanna see. So there's something to be learned here uh, from the EU. The other um, interesting data that just came out um, we don't find because we're not looking outward much anymore as a country, but we need to. Um, There's been an outbreak in a mink farm in the Netherlands. They had to euthanize the entire farm of mink. Uh, The mink became ill with COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2. They got pneumonia. About 10% of the mink became clinically ill Farm workers got infected, and it's unclear if they infected the mink or the mink infected them. We don't know. Uh, and uh, viral RNA was found everywhere. Viral RNA, and we don't know if that was infectious, airborne. So this is very concerning because if COVID or SARS-CoV-2 gets out as a zoonosis. In animals, uh, it can survive out of nature and be passed around. It's going to reinfect us. So this is very concerning and, and something we're going to need to keep watch on in the United States as to whether uh, we allow this to become established in populations of animals in the United States. That would not be a good thing. And then Missy in France, um, these are the multisystem inflammatory disorder. They call it PIMS in Europe. pediatric inflammatory mediated syndrome. Uh, And you can see, um, in their opinion, in France, this is clearly a COVID disease. And you'll see as COVID spiked, uh, which is in March in France, um, then about four weeks after the spike, a a 30-fold increase in Kawasaki-like disease, and um, many of them antibody positive. uh, And so uh, clearly, this was a late COVID disease in, in children, and something. If we have a resurgence uh, in Connecticut uh, or in the rest of the country in this winter, we're going to need to be very concerned about the second wave of misdiagnosis. So that's what's going on in the EU right now. Let's move back to the United States. It just came out from New York on children with, we call it, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And I just wanted to run through. They, they looked at in a deep dive in 17 children, uh, 1.8 years to 16. All were febrile. Almost all had GI symptoms. Half were PCR positive, half were antibody positive. A lot had conjunctivitis and rash. And a very large uh, component had shock. So that's sort of the constellation of Missy. Um, uh, our case number, we have a lot of rule but I think it's going down uh, because COVID is being uh, washed out of the community in Connecticut. And hopefully we'll stop seeing this until there's a resurgence or a month after a resurgence. Now I wanna review testing. Uh, testing has become a conundrum. I get a lot of questions. I know Dr. Salazar does as well. And uh, there is the polymerase chain reaction and enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay are the two major types of testing out there. Providers, hopefully, that's what most out there, but anybody, even uh, patients, uh, understanding what tests they're getting, what they need. Polymerase chain reaction, PCR, relates, go back to your biology uh, in high school and college um, by a remarkable natural law. You have these nucleic acids that bind to each other, and adenine binds to thymine, and cytosine binds to guanine. It's just a rule of nature. And that's how DNA is made, in base pairs. It's just the structure of DNA. It's a whole other talk at some other time, and uh, the, the double helix and the Nobel Prize and all these things came out of this discovery. Polymerase chain reaction re- is uh, exploits that and what you do is you have a DNA sample a small sample that you want to uh, see if it's there and you have primers that are complementary with those nucleic acids and'll bind to that DNA and uh, you put them together and you have a cycler that makes heat first and the DNA falls apart cools off and uses an enzyme called Taq polymerase and that causes extension of the DNA and then you heat it again and cool it again and over 40 cycles you'll have a detectable amount of DNA that can be measured even if there was a teeny 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 bit of DNA originally from the virus. You amplify that and you can detect it. It's extremely sensitive and specific. The story of TAC polymerase is worth going into. That's a DNA polymerase extends DNA from a bacteria that grows in hot springs. And it was discovered by a couple of scientists, named Block and Freeze, Hudson Freeze, who kind of decided, you know, wonder if anything's growing in that Yellowstone hot spring. And, uh, you know, it's one of those examples of how science does not come out of planning, that great discoveries just come out of curiosity of sort of random things. And they sampled the Yellowstone hot spring and they found bacteria that grew at really high temperatures. And that's the enzyme from those bacteria that we use in PCR because at really high temperatures, it allows the templates to bind and, uh, and to get DNA uh, amplified. Now there's a twist for uh, COVID because COVID's an RNA virus. So the first thing we have to do is you ex- extract the RNA from the sample from your nose, isopharynx, and you have to use reverse transcription, which is an enzyme that flips it to DNA. And then the DNA can be amplified just the way I told you about. And you get a positive result you can see on the bottom. And that is a color because it's fluorescence linked to the primers or have dye attached to them. So this is how PCR works uh, for COVID. Highly sensitive and specific. When when it's negative, a false negative, you've heard about that. We often think that's probably because the disease state. Um, Now that we've got sample collection down, I think most places know how to do it, right? Uh, You know, you might be too early and it's negative and uh, two days later you're positive and we think those uh, are most of the false negatives. Now there's some rapid office-based COVID-19 tests. These are not PCR. They're enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays. In these, you have a plate and you stick the virus antigen onto the plate, and you can see on the left, you can have the virus, that's the little triangle can stick to the plate. You have an antibody that binds to that virus and it's colored and that gives you a color in the plate. Or you can have a capture where there's an antibody that captures the virus antigen and then you have another antibody on top and it's a sandwich and that lights up and you have an assay that gives you color. The problem is is that this assay is not as sensitive as PCR. It just simply is not. This is what an ELISA plate looks like, the darker being the dark more signal and the lighter being less signal. You generate a standard curve from this. So ELISA um, is not as sensitive as PCR. It's being offered for office practices and a variety of instant COVID detection. um, And it it is not as sensitive as PCR to detect SARS-CoV-2. So at Kinetic Children's, uh, at the current time, we do not use ELISA for virus antigen detection. Uh, we use uh, the more sensitive that is done in my earlier slides. Now antibody testing also uses ELISA. It's that same capture technique, you know, the, the antibody against COVID sticks. You have another antibody on top uh, and uh, that lights up because it's linked to a fluorescent dye and that's your detection for antibody. As I told you, it's not always the most sensitive, In addition, it measures any antibody uh, to the virus, uh, not just neutralizing antibody, and we don't know what that means, and we don't know how much antibody of which kind confers immunity. A lot of that's being worked out currently, we just don't know. Now, IgM is very sticky, and so um, we use IgG as the gold standard to measure, and we don't know how long the antibodies last. Uh, So at the moment, we only are using the antibody test in our multi-system inflammatory syndrome patients or rule-out patients to document their exposure to SARS-CoV-2. So um, antibody testing at the moment, we are not using routinely um, because we don't know what to do with it. Now, a couple other very important uh, things, and this has led to some changes in policy uh, in Connecticut and other states that are doing well with COVID right now. As you know, um, and I've talked to you about, PCR can stay positive for weeks after you're infected, and we're never really sure what to do with that. And this study, they actually took those specimens and then looked to see if there were viable virus that would infect tissue cultures. So in other words, is that PCR on day 10 infectious or not? And the answer was most likely not. So you can see what they've done here, if the virus is alive in that specimen, and then the blue dots are just the PCR being positive all the time. So you can see by day eight, uh, in this study, it's not a huge number of patients, but a pretty good number of patients from Canada, that by day eight, there were no infectious viruses left in these patients. So we're feeling more and more comfortable Uh, that uh, you probably don't need that two PCR negative approach to people who are convalescing that if you wait uh, 10 days or more, uh, that it's highly unlikely they'll still have a viable virus, even though their PCR might still be positive. These are very important data for us and are helping guide us a little bit. Now, uh, finally, I want to talk about convalescent plasma treatment. I've mentioned to you before that the classic, most efficacious way to use antibodies are really prophylaxis, and that that the antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 would be more likely to be effective in outbreaks or healthcare providers uh, to prevent infection, and that's been the classic uh, efficacy of antibody therapy. Uh, however, we're still trying to see whether we can get some clinical improvement in patients because we don't have much else to offer. And in this study, unfortunately, they didn't really find any improvement in mortality or more rapid discharge in patients who got convalescent plasma. So on the left is the, is the um, controls in convalescent plasma, not significant difference uh, in all patients. If you looked at only those with severe disease, there was a little bit of improvement on the convalescent plasma arm. And you can see that, but in terms of life-threatening disease, there was no improvement. So in one of their patient groups, they seem to show a little bit of improvement uh, that reached statistical significance. So convalescent plasma therapy, uh, we don't have much else to offer. It's unlikely to be a knockout in terms of efficacy. And again, I think you're going to see very quickly from Regeneron and some other companies, cocktails of antibodies as prophylaxis against infection that'll be a bridge a bridge for us until a vaccine is available probably next year so the good the bad and the ugly this week and i see again that unfortunately we've lost video i don't know Juan if you want to try to re reconnect video see if it works connecticut is a success story and we will soon um, have only a few cases a day our death rate is going to approach zero for a few months this is an incredible opportunity a lot of hard work Let's immunize all of our kids who missed their immunizations over the summer and get this done. So again, um, this is what uh, physical distancing shutdown masks have done. And it's gonna allow us to have a careful reopening in the state which is underway. I think it will be successful because we now have the ability to track, or uh, I believe the entire United States could have been, had we made the decision to have national policy. Our decentralized approach, unfortunately, um, with differing criteria for every state, uh, and now increased travel, uh, will create the opportunity for a substantial resurgence. It is what it is. Uh, You're seeing in Arizona and other states now that have uh, had a more or less say fair approach you will see it in Florida shortly. There are going to be a substantial resurgences, and our job's going to be to make sure Connecticut doesn't um, is not affected by this. And so that's why it's going to be important for us to have excellent testing and great tracking of any patients who are positive so we can, we can keep our situation under control. Both and, and promisingly, both antibody prophylaxis and vaccines are in clinical trials and likely to be successful this winter for the antibody prophylaxis and next year uh, for vaccines. Talk to you now about, you know, everything's not COVID in kids. And uh, what should we look for this summer? Uh,
0: thank you, John. I appreciate it. We had to... Uh, uh disconnect your video just to get uh, better speed. Again, if it was a Connecticut company, you would have better speed. It's Massachusetts, what can we do? (laughs) So thank you. The very uh, uh, great commentary and slides. Really appreciate Appreciate. it. Uh, We're going to pass it on now to Dr. Hassan al-Shabib, and uh, you will see him on video in just a second. And Hassan, take it
2: over. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Salazar, again, for the introduction. And thank you, Dr. Stryber, for the valuable information that uh, you've been giving us uh, for the last, uh, now, eight weeks or more than that. Um, So my talk is going to be a quick one about um, upcoming summer fevers and as the state opens up and as uh, children are going to be exposed more and more to uh, uh, infections, including uh, COVID-19. So I wanted to just give, uh, give a quick talk about how COVID-19 can mimic uh, so, my, so many of these infections that will start popping up here and there, and uh, where uh, community physicians uh, will definitely be exposed to as, uh, as the summer moves along. So my outline for, the, for this talk is um, try to look at uh, summer fevers and what kind of infections you would expect using, uh, during the summertime. Uh, when to think about Lyme disease, when to think about COVID-19 and other infectious processes and whether or not it's easy uh, from a clinical perspective uh, to try to differentiate between the two. And um, any management changes uh, when you have a kid who comes uh, into the clinic, whether or not there'll be any major changes in management going forward. As you can see from this uh, huge list, uh, for summertime infections, they can be viral or bacterial. In pediatric world, we always think about viral infections. Uh, especially at uh, certain, uh, certain ages. Some of these uh, may be familiar to, do, to you, some of these may be unfamiliar to you. I'm going to focus uh, on, a couple, uh, on a bunch of them just to talk in more detail about their typical presentation and how they can, be, ca- can uh, have symptoms uh, uh, very close to um, the current uh, uh, coronavirus uh, that we're having. Uh, obviously, um, you can see a, a huge list of infections that can happen during the summertime, Including, uh, the, uh, including the current uh, coronavirus that is uh, going on right now. So it's important to keep in, your, keep in the back of your mind that, yes, coronavirus is still going on, and, yes, this, 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 especially with how Dr. Schreiber was mentioning that states are opening in different uh, phases, and you're seeing resurgence here and there, so it's always too important to keep it in mind. But there is also many other infections you have to keep in mind uh, moving forward during this, uh, this uh, in the coming months. So, epidemiology in general, when we, th- when we talk about infectious disease in general, obviously some of these infections occur during the summer months, some occur during more of the winter and spring, and some occur all year round. Uh, but I'll be focusing more on the ones uh, from the summer months. Uh, transmission can occur through a variety of routes. Mostly, fortunately, it's contact or uh, droplet. Airborne, there are a couple of uh, infections that can, uh, that can um, be transmitted this way, but mostly it's uh, contact and droplet, uh, fortunately. Many patient factors, especially as the state opens up, many patient factors uh, should be taken into account. So we're talking about the environment. For example, household members and visitors will be coming in and out of uh, a particular uh, home uh, for, uh, for, a, for your patients, uh, whether that's human interaction, uh, whether that's animal interaction, especially with the data coming up that household pets can pick up the coronavirus, uh, other pets, uh, and obviously rodents, and uh, other ma- visitors uh, to, uh, to the house. Uh, as daycare, camp, and summer school uh, access uh, start to uh, open up uh, during this, uh, these coming months, this is something you have to be vigilant about and have to keep in mind and make sure that uh, this is something that's um, uh, asked about uh, to the parents. Gatherings will start be popping up, too. Be gatherings between different family members or between different household uh, members, uh, including trips, hikes, uh, swimming pools, and gyms that uh, should, uh, are planned to be opening up uh, Uh, quite soon uh, in Connecticut State. That also will increase the risk of human interaction, will increase the risk of uh, getting more and more cases, and will increase the risk of uh, developing these kinds of infections. Comorbidities is also an important thing to keep in mind, whether that's especially diabetes, kidney disease, immune suppression, and I'm talking more about uh, the pediatric population. Obviously, with adult population, heart conditions, hypertension, and whatnot is also important to keep in mind, Uh, but from a pediatric perspective, at least these three conditions are important to keep in mind. Behavioral issues, uh, especially with the very young population, we're talking about the toddlers or younger, or younger kids, especially who attend daycare. Mouthing is part of their uh, development process, uh, so it's important uh, to keep that in mind. Uh, hygiene, as much as you can um, uh, tell an adult to make sure that their hands are kept uh, well, hi- and, uh, well, you know, applying the um, uh, soap and water and all of these stuff, it's important that in kids, it's, it tends to be harder to do uh, versus adults. Mask limitation in the young. Many kids, I um, have a two-year-old who basically just kept a mask for less than a minute on his face. It's just, um, that's, um, it's, for them, it's something very, very new. And, for, and sometimes, especially for the younger ones, it's hard to apply a mask, especially when you're uh, out and about. Direct and physical social interaction is very important for uh, kids uh, development and that is something will start uh, uh, popping up here more and more as daycares open up and other play uh, Play areas open up. Uh, So that's another risk factor that can increase the risk of acquiring the infection and obviously uh, younger kids or older uh, or older, uh, older children or adolescents with developmental disabilities can also be uh, a challenge trying to maintain uh, their behavior uh, to decrease the risk of uh, transmission of the infection so you can see from an epidemiology perspective at least this applies all across the board from infectious disease including the current uh, the current coronavirus that they're dealing with as Dr. Schreiber was mentioning, various phases across the U.S. and across the world, uh, they, this has been uh, changing drastically, during, especially during the upcoming week and, uh, weeks and upcoming months as different states open up in different phases, and also the, the different parts of the world open up in different, um, in different phases too. And some, some, parts of the, some parts of the world obviously are still uh, getting uh, increase in the number of cases, so it's important to keep in mind that uh, this is still going on and to remain vigilant about that. As I said, various states uh, are opening up at different phases and you can see the data that are still starting to pull in from different states who have started to open up and they have been seeing more and more cases. Movement across the state, especially with the CDC easing the um, uh, out-of-travel and the Connecticut uh, DPH easing the out-of-travel restrictions, um, out-of-state, sorry, restrictions, uh, it's important to to keep in mind that moving in and out-of-state can affect uh, the local transmission rates, whether that's travel by land or by air, and especially it all depends on what activities that um, a person may have engaged to outside the the, uh, state of Connecticut. So, I'll be focusing on these uh, ones uh, mainly because they can be very similar to uh, coronavirus, or at least maybe you, think you can think about the other way around that the coronavirus can present, especially the current one, can present with, with these uh, symptoms. Hand, foot, and mouth disease, uh, uh, adenoviral infections, diarrhea outbreaks uh, for a multitude of reasons. Measles is important to keep in mind, uh, roseola, Lyme, and uh, recreational water use and uh, its associated infections. Goxiaque virus, I mean, uh, probably all of you um, know about hand, foot, and mouth disease. And if you look at these moving forward, keep in mind, just keep in mind how the coronavirus, current current coronavirus can present and how that can be very, very uh, similar to uh, many of these infections and also other infections that go on. From a respiratory perspective, choriza and pharyngitis uh, can uh, be symptoms of Coxsagy virus, including uh, pulmonary symptoms too, very, very, very much similar to coronavirus. Uh, from a dermatologic perspective, Hanford and Mouth disease is a very t- bread and butter of uh, pediatrics. Uh, you see many, de- many of these cases uh, pop up, especially during uh, the summertime. Non-specific exanthems, uh, especially with how the coronavirus, and I'll talk more about what, how, uh, what kind of uh, rashes uh, does the coronavirus present with. Uh, from a peripheral or central nervous system, aseptic meningitis and encephalitis. Fortunately, this has not been more early on. Uh, some data from adults, uh, from the adult side, of, uh, has shown that some kind of cases can present with these kinds of uh, presentations. Fortunately, in the pediatric world, at least in the Connecticut children, uh, we did not have uh, um, any major cases uh, when uh, talking about meningitis and encephalitis uh, from a perspective of the coronavirus. GI symptoms, vomiting and diarrhea is very also an abdominal pain. That is something that you can see in uh, the coronavirus. And especially when you look at the MIS-C, uh, the MIS-C aspect of it with the hyperinflammation, hepatitis can be uh, included in that. Acute hemorrhagic conjunctivitis, that is something can be f- found uh, with coronavirus, especially when you're talking about the MIS-C, the hyperinflammation. Cardiac and muscle findings too can also be, uh, can also be seen in both of these viruses. Adenovirus is uh, very, uh, is very um, um, interesting to look at from a perspective of, if you look at the Red Book chapter when talking about Kawasaki disease and uh, hyperinflammation, uh, they do make an exception that if somebody presents with a fever, uh, exudative, uh, conjunctivitis, and exudative pharyngitis, if the adenovirus is detected, then Kawasaki disease is extremely unlikely. It's probably the adenovirus that's producing these symptoms. On the right side of the screen, you can see the chest X-ray with the cloudy appearance of the of the lungs, and this is very similar to what the coronavirus uh, uh, acutely can present, and even later on with MSC can also present uh, in this way. And if you look at through the symptoms, you can see the pharyngitis, tonsillitis, uh, life-threatening disseminated infection can happen, uh, bronchiolitis, uh, follicular conjunctivitis, uh, gastroenteritis, These, the, the, the uh, adenovirus can be very, very similar to what uh, coronavirus can present. Disease, diarrhea-causing infections, um, for obvious reasons, fever, diarrhea, abdominal pain, vomiting, dehydration, uh, can be very similar also to the coronavirus, and, but you have to keep in mind this is a very common thing, especially as the summer moves along. HUS is uh, another entity, although it's usually associated with antibiotic uh, starting, although some of the labs can mimic those of um, uh, when, that, when when pediatric patients present with that. Measles is a big one. Uh, we've seen uh, resurgences in measles uh, throughout the years, uh, especially with, uh, with vaccine hesitant uh, groups, uh, especially with international travel um, and that may happen uh, later uh, during the year. Uh, fever, cough, uh, conjunctivitis. These are very similar to what you can present with the, with the coronavirus. The maculopapular rash, it is very uh, typical of the measles. Uh, you have the cephalocaudally and centrifugally uh, spreading and then clearing of the maculopapular rash. This is uh, very important, but it can be difficult to distinguish early on, especially when the rash develops. Complex spots, Uh, I've only read about them. I've never seen, obviously never seen one, maybe with the uh, older um, uh, uh, pediatricians out there may have uh, seen these cases here and there. Uh, But it's important to note that measles in general can, uh, or coronavirus in general can mimic, especially when you look at them and see from a multi-inflammatory perspective, uh, it's important to keep in mind that it can um, very much mimic uh, measles presentations. Roseola, with its high-grade fever, three to seven seven days, and then the maculopapular rash, it's very typical that uh, this is also the bed and butter pediatrics where kids have very high-grade fevers, and then on the next day, the fever goes away, and then a rash uh, erupts, and this can stay for quite a period of time. Um, And you can see, you can have some GI symptoms and some respiratory symptoms, so you can see the the correlation with the coronavirus and how this can be uh, confused uh, with that. Especially the the, uh, rashes I'm going to talk about, can be very, very similar to that lyme disease is a big one especially as the summer goes along and we are in the northeast uh, we're one of the biggest um, um, areas um, uh, that are having uh, lyme disease outbreaks here and there every year Uh, obviously you can uh, uh, distinguish with uh, uh, lyme disease different depending on the stage of the infection early localized early disseminated and late disease uh, with the early localized and early disseminated, when you have the typical rash, as you can see in the figures here, when you have the typical rash of the erythema migrans, given our uh, location in the northeast, um, the Lyme disease probability is very, very high. And in these situations, uh, the Red Book, even when you look at the chapter, recommends even not testing, just going ahead, uh, going ahead to treat, with treatment, uh, just because it's, it's very pathognomonic of uh, Lyme disease, and it's very um, uh, common in our area especially as the weather uh, becomes uh, warmer and warmer. Uh, With the the meningitis and the carditis, that's where uh, definitely antibody testing will be very, very helpful in distinguishing uh, between the two entities. Uh, Arthritis uh, and uh, encephalitis are late manifestations of the disease, and that's also where uh, Lyme disease antibody testing can be very helpful. Recreational water use, as kids uh, become uh, more and more, and uh, swimming pools eventually will start opening. E. coli, cryptosporidium, and giardia are uh, things that you need to look out for. Uh, swimmers ear, um, obviously, that is, uh, that is a risk uh, with re- recreational water use, uh, but I don't think that's been described uh, with the coronavirus. So that is something that distinguish- can be distinguished easily from the coronavirus. One thing you have to keep in mind with vaccine preventable diseases early on in May, the CDC released a report about how they uh, noticed a huge drop. Uh, If you can look at the if you can see the graph in the top right corner, you can see a huge drop in the number of vaccines that were uh, requested uh, by uh, pediatricians and by healthcare centers uh, for immunization. You can see almost a drop of uh, two and a half million to three million doses. Uh, The CDC usually they um, look at data that uh, that uh, come from uh, almost 50% of the vaccine that is administered uh, to the pediatric population, and this data reflects that. So 2.5 million to 3 million is quite a drop, and uh, we've been noticing whether that's from um, uh, probably it's more concerned about parents uh, not uh, being too concerned about coming in for their regular uh, child visits and uh, getting their uh, scheduled vaccines. Obviously, the AAP um, uh, released, an, um, um, released a statement about these vaccination rate drops and obviously urges a pediatrician to push for more and more for vaccination, especially as things open up, uh, there will definitely be a catch up uh, to do with many of these uh, kids. Uh, this was also mentioned in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine. So uh, switching gears uh, to the corona, current coronavirus, as you say, as you saw, many of these symptoms and signs that I spoke about with the other viral infections uh, overlap with the COVID-19 uh, the acute infection or the, see the later manifestations that we're seeing, uh, presumably from the COVID-19. Um, I'll talk about more about the symptoms, some of the uh, peculiar rashes that we've noticed uh, in the last, uh, during this uh, pandemic, uh, the hyperinflammation, and as I said, overlap with other infections. You can see this is what the, usual, what the coronavirus out there is producing, uh, either acutely or, um, or as late uh, manifestations, and you can see if you look at these, uh, apart from the loss of smell and taste, uh, this is pretty much uh, your uh, typical, and the perineal chablains, uh, these are pretty much your typical rule out infection uh, criteria in this situation. So the types of rashes in Spain, they did a case series of 375 cases. They called it the great mimickers since many of these rashes can be present in uh, many of uh, the infections that uh, can be picked up during the summertime. Uh, whether, especially when you look at the maculopapia eruptions, which are well, almost uh, 50% uh, of these cases. Some of the chiblains or the perneo uh, in the right upper corner, uh, mostly at least at, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the ID clinic, we've seen uh, mostly in the lower extremity toes uh, where there was inflammation, it lasts for three to four weeks, and then it goes away on its own. Still, it's still in the realm of uh, whether or not this is a direct effect of the virus or a late manifestation. Uh, the, still, the data is out there and uh, hopefully we'll have more information about that uh, in the coming months. One thing to to keep in mind, common things will remain common. Uh, COVID-19 will be on the differential more often this summer coming, especially with the fall and winter when schools start popping up. Uh, fortunately for us, as you've seen the data, uh, most pediatric patients have not developed any severe disease. Uh, they less likely require hospitalization, less likely to develop complications. Concern for the MSC is mainly seen in the pediatric population, obviously, and that is something that will probably pop up uh, given the media access and given the media attention about these diseases. Probably parents will be asking more and more about that management and testing obviously what i'm speaking about right now will change probably in the next uh, weeks uh, or so but pcr is uh, definitely for acute or recent infection antibody for an old infection sensitivity and specificity is uh, still up in the air but hopefully we'll have more information about that as things move along um, from a management and testing, from a testing perspective, whether that it will affect management, at, I'm, at least I'm not sure how it affects management. Definitely, if you have a household who has an immune compromise or the patient himself is immune compromised, has multiple medical problems, if there is parental concern that they want in pushing for the testing, that is something that can be offered. Obviously, you have to keep in mind household members, if they have any elderly, especially above 65 or 70 years of age, who are at increased risk of severe disease. And obviously, if they have any other increased morbidity at the household, heart disease, hypertension, etc. Uh, that would be something that you may discuss with the parents and, pedi- and, and, the, and the patient about uh, moving on with the testing to help with the, uh, decreasing the risk of transmitting the infection to the household member. Symptomatic care at this point is acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and supportive care. Uh, uh, Pediatricians should be vigilant about the MIS-C, hyperinflammation, uh, Kawasaki-like picture. Uh, studies are trying to delineate these processes and trying to come up whether testing is there a way to test to uh, detect early hyperinflammation or to detect patients who can be at high risk of uh, developing such complications. Vaccines uh, will hopefully have something by the winter late this year or early uh, uh, next year. So that is something we, uh, uh, we need to keep up and make sure that we're up to date with that. Effective therapy, whether or not there will be one that will be just like what the oseltamivir or Tamiflu does for the flu, uh, only time will tell. And probably going to be best at the earliest sign of the infection. Role of immunomodulators will be better studied, hopefully, in the coming months. Uh, And whether or not there will be increased cases in the summer, uh, only time will tell. But uh, uh, definitely... Any questions, uh, the Connecticut uh, DPH and the CDC offer guidance on these, uh, on these issues. Uh, we have Connecticut Children's ID group are available for any questions about uh, anything that comes up, uh, whether from the community pediatricians or parents. Thank you. Thank
0: you very much. Um, we'll get John back and stay there, uh, Hassan, for the questions. Um, the first one is for, for, for John, is when we send out, uh, John, can you hear us?
1: I can thank you.
0: Can you hear me? Okay, perfect. yeah, we can hear you and see you now. All right. uh, when we send out the, uh, when we send out for the COVID nineteen nasopharyngeal test, can we specifically ask for PCR? And which area labs give the most accurate results?
1: I can't answer the last part of that. I mean, I think um, we believe that most of the PCR tests are accurate. Um, Remember, there'll be a window uh, for a prior to clinical illness where there could be a negative where the person's actually infected. But if it's PCR, I think we're generally comfortable in the community now that it will be sensitive and accurate. I don't know which um, drive-throughs. I think most of them are using PCR. The ELISA is really being marketed as a rapid diagnosis for office-based uh, and clinics. Uh, so at the moment, um, and Juan, you can correct me, but at the moment, I believe that most of the drive-throughs um, and the hospital-sponsored testing and health system-sponsored testing uh, is PCR. Drugstores, Walmart, um, Rapids, um, I don't know. It's probably a mixture. I don't know, Juan, if you have any information about how many of them are using a license yet.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know. I know CVS here locally is using a PC, PCR uh, nasopharyngeal swab. The difference there is that they don't swab you. They ask you to swab yourself. So you drive up. They give you a. Uh, they have a video or not a video. They have a uh, camera, pictures, and then they ask you to just put the swab in your nose, and put it in. I mean, how accurate that is. I mean, the, it, obviously the you know it's there's some question if you don't swab well enough, you may get a negative result. But uh, we'll learn more about it. But most of the most of what's being done out there is PCR based, which is very useful. The next question is uh, it, it's a, from Dr. Lao, Ching Lao, one uh, with the head of our, of oncology. Uh, CDC recommends time-based or symptom-based strategy to release patients from isolation. Are we still adhering for the two-negative PCR strategy? And John, you can comment on our decision-making from this morning.
1: Yes, that's a great question. Uh, As you you in the audience may be aware, uh, Connecticut Children's was uh, being very careful about this and doing two PCRs on our employees who had been infected, making sure that they were negative before they could come back to work. Uh, new data I showed you actually, uh, that the majority of people, even if they're excreting PCR positivity, are not actually infectious. Uh, and so the CDC is moving back from the two tests negative, um, and we've decided to do the same thing. So uh, s- shortly, uh, we will no longer be requiring two negative PCRs on employees uh, and patients uh, returning from infection, and we'll go to a time-based and symptom-based strategy that's in the CDC recommendations. I'm glad you asked that, uh, Dr. Lau.
0: Um, This is for for Hassan. As a community uh, pediatrician, it is difficult to see how to move forward to care for children with fever, rash, common summer illnesses that are coming soon. We're doing telemedicine evaluations, but there are significant limitations, especially regarding the oral exam and being able to see rash as well. What is your recommendation at this point for in-person visits, point-of-care testing for strep viral assays? It would be great to not to have to send everyone to the ED just because we don't have negative pressure rooms. Also, any data on co-infection, for example, strep, and they may still have COVID.
2: Thank you for this question. Uh, Let's uh, answer the second part of the question. It's going to be at least the data, and and, uh, Dr. Schreiber and Dr. Salazar can uh, chime in. Obviously, uh, I'm not aware of any data. Yes, there are possibilities of co-infections, whether or not this is an acute infection, both of them at the same time, or we're just detecting residual virus or that virus, technically. Uh, So it's going to be difficult whether or not, and moving forward, obviously, we'll have more answers about that, unless you guys, uh, Dr. Salazar or Dr. Schreiber, have any input uh, concerning the co-infections. Uh,
0: I think I think it's based on uh, on the on the positivity in the community, which yeah. is now fairly low. So I think most of the st- most of the illness pediatricians will be seeing is going to be non-COVID. Yeah. Uh,
2: so for the first part of the question, uh, that is something that came up even uh, early when this uh, pandemic <clears throat> started, and. I've seen a number of ways that pediatricians uh, were able to do that. Some of it can apply, some of it can, uh, can, it's difficult to apply with certain uh, office-based settings. Uh, But uh, what I've noticed, uh, especially with uh, pediatric offices who have multiple offices, they separated one for regular well-child visits and one for um, uh, infections-based visits. Uh, Some of the offices even separated them by day, like every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we'll see um, uh, regular visits, and maybe uh, Tuesday and Thursday, seeing uh, infection-related visits. Uh, This would be one way of uh, doing it. Uh, It all depends, obviously, on the office base and uh, whether or not this is something uh, feasible. Uh, But at at least from that perspective, uh, you are able to manage that in in this way. Um, hopefully that answers
0: his question. Okay, thank you, uh, Hassan. Uh, John, uh, so um, th- there's a question for you, John, it, So from from Scott Shaw. Um, uh, so far, our pre-op testing of asymptomatic children showed only 13 positive out of 100 of 818 that were tested. That's 1.6%. That makes me very hopeful for reopening daycare, summer camps, and school. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think um, you, you bring up a good topic in Connecticut now. I bet you that number is lower uh, shortly in the terms of um, the likelihood of getting a positive out of just randomly testing children. It's gonna be low, it's a good place to be. And the state has recommendations on reopening these things. I I wouldn't um, presume to step on uh, what their recommendations are. But I do think, in my view, common sense dictates that with all the testing we have available, we can reopen. Uh, some of these and in a very, very careful way. I mean, we will be able to know if they choose to test, say a daycare center chooses to test before reopening. They'll know which kids are infected most, or maybe none of them will be, and that will be reassuring both the parents, but also to the adult adult providers in those daycare centers and schools. Uh, Schools are full of people with various risk uh, categories, and they're going to want to know that the children are, are negative. So I'm optimistic, but I do think it needs to be linked to enhanced testing, in my opinion.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, this is a, uh, I guess, common question from Mary Simon, one of our pediatricians. Uh, Hassan, have you heard of, of pediatricians seeing a surge in mononucleosis cases?
2: Um, we've seen cases at least uh, getting referred to us or called, uh, called to us in um, uh, with mostly EBV either acutely, but mostly, most of them have had some kind of old infection with very similar symptoms. We did have a, ca- a couple of cases where they tested CMV-positive uh, IgM, so that was, um, that was something uh, that was easy to answer. Uh, some of them, yes, are presenting with this infectious mono-like symptoms of your typical EBV-like uh, infection, and their EBV or CMV only either are negative or shows an old infection. Uh, with the T, whether or not this is kind of um, uh, a uh, mini multi-inflammation or a mini hyper-inflammation, it's difficult to tell at this point. Uh, but we've seen a bit of number of cases uh, colds, at least from pediatricians here and there about that.
0: So, Mary, it sounds like they yes, uh, as always, you know, mana is always going to be part of your differential and, and keep an, keep an eye on it. Um, this is a in, in this era of in this era, should all patients with severe pharyngitis, and diarrhea be throat and peak culture for COVID-19, even if there are no respiratory symptoms? John, that would be for you.
1: You know, the way I'm looking, I think I think Dr. El-Shabib sort of, uh, in his talk, summed this up. COVID is now one of our portfolio of possible pediatric infections. It's one of them. And right now it happens to be a common one, but you saw the percent, it's dropping. So it is in our differential now for a variety of different presentations. It's a new, new thing in our portfolio. So the answer would be, if you're suspicious, uh, testing's easy now. So you can do it. Um, I think if the child clearly falls in a different category, it's sort of the adenovirus story you've documented, it's some other infection, it's probably unlikely to be COVID. But I do think now that testing's available, and, and if that's in your differential of your portfolio of pediatric illnesses that that child could have, you could test
0: Here's a question for either one of you. I've had a I've had a lot of teens and parents of toddlers in Daker refuse to go for the COVID MP testing because it hurts. Is there any way less noxious but more sensitive uh or more sensitive test that can be developed? What do you recommend?
1: Well, you know, uh, Dr. Salazar, I know, uh, Juan, you've mentioned that there uh, are ability to do uh, cheek and throat and other ways that you can recover this for PCR, but I don't think they've been standardized yet. I think it's just the NP swab right now that is standardized uh, in terms of the testing. So right now, that's all we have. I am optimistic that PCR will be adapted to easier ways of getting the specimen in the near future. You may know more.
0: Once. Yeah, so we're, we're currently doing a study with uh, Jackson Labs where we're comparing, uh, you know, all four modalities, NP, uh, so nasopharyngeal, uh, and just a buccal swab with, and then a saliva test. And so we'll, hopefully we'll have results. My, my guess is the PCR is going to be very sensitive in any of those modalities, uh, in, but we'll, we'll compare. We'll have results, and ideally for a smaller kid, it might be easier just to put something in their, in their buccal mucosa as opposed to the nasopharynx. Uh, a question for uh, for either one of you: uh, How do you respond to a daycare camp director's request to clear children to return to program? <laughs>
2: that's what that's you wanna... Yeah, I mean, um, looking at, if you're looking like, looking looking at that from that perspective, it's going to be dependent, and that's what I usually tell parents. Uh, sometimes they ask for clearance papers and everything. It all depends on the daycare policy and how much uh, they want to follow their own policy versus what the CDC or Connecticut DPH uh, is following, unfortunately uh it's uh, gonna be difficult to force uh, a particular daycare that is has their own policies set up and everything from uh switching their policies around uh that is something you may uh, as a pediatrician discuss with the director but uh, it all falls on the daycare policy unfortunately i'm not sure if you guys have any and i think
0: i think there was that. a continuation of the above i just hadn't seen it okay. uh, it's w- one child so this is a family one child has a positive COVID test mm-hmm. Um, the second child with fever or cough, but COVID test negative, And a third child with close contact with COVID. <laughs> so, you know, this is, uh, so the, the whole family is COVID infested. So it's, uh, what do you, what would you do, John?
1: I, I, I would do the, I would do the time period role. You know, I would, I, when the last kid 10 days after, uh, their symptomatology, they're probably clear to come back. So I, I think I'd probably go by the time each kid. All
0: right. So 10 days is what we're saying. And not retest. test, uh, all right, uh, uh, Hassan, for you, uh, please comment on prophylaxis treatment for tick bites. It is, is, a, is recommended for adults. What about children?
2: Uh, in children, uh, usually with the tick bites, um, uh, definitely soap and water after removing the tick, keeping an eye on the area. In the pediatric uh, population, uh, those um, above eight years of age, you can do, you can use one oral uh, dose of doxycycline if that is something that the parents are pushing for. Uh, but the studies are not uh, the best out there, and usually just uh, clinical observation uh, would be the best uh, uh, thing to do for them.
0: All right, great. Uh, it, this is a comment uh, for you, John. Is, uh, here's the title for John Shriver's podcast. John Shriver, is he a true Cubs fan? That was... <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, no, uh, 16, 16 years at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. I, I, I'm sorry to say I'm an Indians fan, so it is what it is. I do, there's, one question, there's one question up there, Juan, um, that's a good question about uh, the study I showed about a convalescent serum was from China. Are there any American studies? I want to answer that. There's actually a new study from Mount Sinai. I didn't put it in because it's one of those preprints. You know, it's not really peer-reviewed yet. But it showed the same kind of mediocre kind of help. Like if you weren't intubated yet, convalescent serum helped mortality. But if you already intubated, it didn't help you at all. So it's sort of the same issue. Um, early treatment versus prophylaxis is much more likely to be effective with antibodies than if you're already critically ill. So uh, there, there, I'm I assume that's going to be published soon in the American literature. So yes, there is an American
0: study. Okay. Um, Hassan from a pediatrician. What is the, I'm uh, sorry, what percentage of cardiac complications are coronary aneurysms versus myocarditis?
2: I think at least reading from uh, my own, own time is that I think myocarditis is much more prominent in these hyperinflammation uh, syndromes, at least from the experience on uh, covering uh, the floor. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if there is any data out there that I'm, I'm not aware of, at least. Uh, Dr. Schreiber and Dr. Salazar? No, I
1: think you. I think you bring up a very good point. You know, one of the differentiators uh, it seems to be a more uh, global cardiac inflammation as opposed to just the coronary arteries. Uh, and so I, I think it's more likely to be uh, myocarditis and cardiac dysfunction more globally. But I don't know. I don't have data of actual numbers either.
0: From uh, Dr. Segul, one of our highly experienced pediatricians. If schools open this fall. And one child arriving on a bus has a fever detected when screening temperatures are done upon arrival to school. Do we need to send the other 20 children on the bus home and quarantine them for 14 days?
1: I would say no. Uh, what I would do is that one child would be sent home and screened. And then, you know, if that happened, that kid happens to be COVID positive, that's a different story. But the answer would be no, I wouldn't send the whole bus home. That's just that one child would be not allowed in school.
0: Uh, Hassan, uh, can you uh, can you discuss lab work that can help differentiate MISI from other summer infections such as adenovirus or coxsackie?
2: So, um, as I said in my talk, this is something that's uh, still evolving. Uh, there are um, uh, studies out there trying to differentiate M. C. from toxic shock syndrome, from Kawasaki disease, and looking at lab values. Uh, there were a couple of studies that talked about uh, CRP, that it's a bit um, uh, significantly higher during the MSI versus other kinds of uh, infections. Unfortunately, I don't think there are any studies out there that differentiate, like, if somebody has adenovirus, what are the lab values are compared to somebody who presents it with the MIS-C. So. Don't there our our answers for that specifically. Okay.
0: Um, uh, This is from Jack Lavalette, one of our our pediatricians in Glastonbury. Uh, Are there recommendations for room turnover as we start to see kids in the office? Empty room time between visits, UV systems, air purifiers, cleaning products. John, I think we had a recommendation for this.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a good question. What we're looking at is if it's a high-risk kid, there's a procedure you're doing that's high-risk or something like that. We're doing that 15-minute turnover. If it's an afebrile kid who the screening and there's no COVID risk and there's nothing that you're worried about, we're we're doing sort of a standard turnover room cleaning immediately, so we don't wait that 15 minutes. So again, high risk, that's a 15-minute wait. Low risk, nothing happening, we do quick turnover and cleaning. I don't know, Juan, if there's anything else you want to add to that. We're using
0: that, you know, for for you know, a non-sick visit uh, we we just keep moving. Uh, but somebody who we have a concern for either a summer virus, respiratory virus, then we, we take, you know, it's a 15-minute process of cleaning, turning around, so it slows you down a little bit, um, and, but that's the rule we're using, 15 minutes. So that's a good question, Jack, and we can give you additional information, which we're gonna be posting on our website. Um, the, this is a question for, there are two more questions, and then we have to wrap up. The, uh, the first one is from Danielle Warren, who's uh, one of our uh, social workers who leads the HIV programs, and Danielle, I'm glad you're logged in. And this is for, for John. What are your thoughts on possible future mutations of the COVID virus?
1: Uh, you know, it's a great question. Uh, that, As you know, with influenza, that's an annual problem, and it's why the influenza vaccine has always been an annual challenge. It does not appear that COVID mutates as rapidly as those other viruses. It seems relatively stable. And remember, the, it binds to that one site on the ACE2 receptor, and that doesn't seem to change. And so... We have a pretty good site that we can go after to generate antibodies for, so I think it's less of a worry, uh, Danielle, than with the other uh, flu viruses uh, that, that we see in the winter. So it's a good question.
0: Last question for Dr. Altman, um, former head of hematology and oncology. Arnie, good to have you on board. And uh, it, I think for either one of you, can you comment on the risk of, uh, of a spike in COVID infections after the recent crowding during protest uh, demonstrations?
1: You know, I, I think um, it's like uh, it's just mathematics. If there was one person infected who wasn't wearing a mask, uh, other people will be infected. It's very contagious. So I think there probably will be a spike. We need to be vigilant. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, depending on the crowd and whether there happened to be a person who was infected. So the answer is probably yes. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we're going to see spikes. From just the whole population sort of throwing up their hands and acting as if the pandemic's over in Arizona, for example. So, uh, you know, both may factor in uh, later this summer uh, with spikes. I I do think in Connecticut, uh, where uh, we seem to be um, managing this in a a very cohesive fashion as a population, we had protests, we, we did what we needed to do. But I think in general, people recognize that uh, this was an infection that could affect all of us. And I, I think in this state, I'm pretty comfortable we're going to do okay and, and we're going to have imported cases that are going to be our challenge this summer.
0: All right, thank you, uh, uh, Hassan and John. I really appreciate you. your your input on this. And uh, for, the, uh, for all, of the, all, all of those who you joined, thank you again. Just a reminder that at 10:30, uh, you can log in also. Uh, we have Congressman Courtney who will have uh, will, who will be available. Uh, during a one-hour town hall uh, hosted by Connecticut Children's and uh, Jim Schmerling uh, discussing the topic of telemedicine, telehealth, and what's uh, the efforts by the federal government. So uh, uh, Joe Courtney, who's one of our uh, excellent uh, congressmen, will be available. So please log in. Uh, That information was sent to you via the chat, uh, so you can uh, register, you do need to register. And if, uh, if you're available at 10.30, I'll see you at 10.30 from 10.30 to 11.30. If not, we'll see you again next Tuesday and then next Friday, Grand Rounds and Ask the Esperance. So have a great weekend and thank you both for the presentation. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody.